Hi, welcome to the second and third episodes of Adventures in Dialogue. My name is Melissa, and I sat down with my friend Erica Tess Kahn, who is a fashion and apparel designer, to talk through uh, her career and also about supply chain uh, logistics and sustainability sourcing, things like that from a designer's perspective. Eric has worked for brands like Pilgrim and the North Face and is now working for an outdoor company in Boulder, Colorado called Artelect. Uh, she's helping head up the design there and they're doing some really cool stuff. So it was, uh, it ended up being a two hour conversation. I felt like that was a little bit long for one sitting. So definitely wanted to, um, break it up. And the first episode, we talk about kind of Erica's, you know, how she became a designer, how she sort of put it together. A lot of it was, you know, just following her interests and her passion. So I think it's a really interesting story in terms of, you know, just getting in there and getting your hands dirty as far as what you're interested in. And, you know, her story definitely is inspiring in that sense of leading her to where she wanted to be. So the second episode is getting more into the sustainability side of apparel manufacturing and design and particularly supply chain logistics. Obviously that's a big topic right now um, with everything happening in terms of delays and things like that. But we definitely try to stay a little bit high level on it as far as not getting too in the weeds, technically uh, more just kind of identifying trends and, you know, potential opportunities for change. It's a big meaty subject. So there's lots of ways to look at it. And, you know, I think that was kind of where we ended with the conversation is, is just trying to break down some of the things that are out there in terms of, you know, what people might not be aware of, what people might be aware of, but might want to go deeper on. And so, you know, in general, just uh, looking at it through Erica's perspective, having worked for um, at different levels of supply chain sourcing. And yeah, so she gives us a, a well-rounded perspective on that. And what else? Let's see. Um, a couple notes on how each of the episodes start. The first one is coming in a bit mid uh, sentence we were chatting just before I hit record so not a super proper intro but um, we get into it pretty quickly so that's the first episode and then the second one picks up on where we were in our conversation kind of shifting more into the supply chain sustainability talk and uh, yeah so if, if you feel like you're walking into the middle of a conversation that is what is happening on both so I am working on getting some intro music set up. So, you know, the, these intros don't have to be so, uh, so quiet, I guess. And, uh, I'm just slowly, you know, learning how to podcast, learning how to bring things to life and produce. So, um, eventually we'll hopefully get a producer, but in the meantime, uh, I hope you enjoy the episodes. Thanks so much. We're teetering on the edge of what we want to talk about. <laughs> I'm here for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I definitely 
appreciate you being able to, you know, articulate kind of like sourcing material side of design, because I feel like you have a pretty good, you've had a number of different sort of experiences with that and um, just seems like a good topic. So definitely. And it's, it's a good topic for people to kind of understand more just because there's a lot of rhetoric all the time around it, um, which, you know, can at times make my blood boil because it's a, it's a big complicated beast. So I hope I can do a little bit of demystifying to what, you know, textiles and design and, and apparel manufacturing is because it's huge. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it has so many far reaching cycles and other industries that spawn off of it and things like that. Totally. So, well, okay, cool. Let's start then with maybe describe your background um, and just how, you know, the steps leading up to where you are and and we can work from there. Yeah. So I grew up in Boulder, uh, Colorado, and was just like a super sports kid. Um, just really active. And then I, I got really into the outdoors and specifically really into snowboarding and was just really into it. It was competitive through high school and started to kind of like, that was the time when Heshers and you know, making your pants tight and all that kind of stuff was coming into style, but none of the companies are making that type of style yet. So I got really into like taking clothes and modifying hoodies and t-shirts and jackets and, and buying things at thrift stores. And, um, that's kind of how I started to get into design. And I, I was, you know, crocheting hats, which was a big thing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and like selling them at my school and at local resorts. And I just got really, really into it and decided to go into design instead of pursuing snowboarding. Um, I was living in Breckenridge and, just was like decided that wasn't for me went you know I I like dabbled in in a little bit of college here and there I went to see Boulder for for a minute and dropped out and then did some other snowboard stuff and then ultimately applied to FIT in New York City and moved there yeah in Breckenridge were you doing fashion-based stuff at all or design type activities Um, I was working at a burrito shop uh, and I was, I did have a sewing machine and I was knitting hats. No, no, you're right. I was, I had a, uh, in quotes company called a hat company called love stitch at the time. And I would like see them. I still, I like think the last time I saw one was maybe like seven years ago. I spotted one and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. But I would, um, I would like go to the Hill with just stacks of hats. Cause I could make like one an hour sell them out of the back of my car for $25 a pop. And that's kind of how I paid for contest entry fees and gas and everything. And I, I wasn't, I was quote unquote living in Breckenridge, but I was on a couch in a, in a living room, helping someone else out with, um, with rent. So yeah, that was my lifestyle at the time. How long did you live there? Um, I was on and off in Breckenridge from when I was 17, actually, I would like spend just stupid amounts of time there. Uh, I was about 18, 19. I wasn't there for very long. It was like a crazy winter. I was like half, I went to school two days a week. I was 
in the mountains five days a week. Yeah. I think I spent one full season technically there, but was, was kind of popped in and out a lot. And then one summer I got a studio space in the back of a gallery in Boulder okay. called Atmosphere. I started a clothing line out of there at one point. It was selling like dresses for, it was awesome. I'll have to share some, some of pre-design school apparel making because I was just in the back of this gallery producing anything I felt like making. I got one of those like $169 adjustable um, fit forms at Joann's and just like made everything I could possibly make because I, um, in high school, I made my prom dress and I took our high school sewing class. One time I like did the thing, we made pajama pants or whatever. But again, my last semester of senior year, it was just like, I want to take this again, but I want to make my own syllabus. Yeah. And um, the, the home ec teacher at the time was like really into sewing. And she was like, totally like, here's a book of all these stitches, learn how to do all of them. And I ended up with a huge book, of like every type of stitch. Okay. And then I made, I made my prom dress out of this bright purple raw silk with this giant bow on the back. It was a, it was a good time, but that's kind of very roundabout and non-chronological way of how I got really into design. And I was like, Oh, I think this is my thing. Yeah. Um, the dresses, were you making those from patterns or were you just kind of hacking it? I bought one pattern, which is the one that I used for my, my prom dress so this was before making all of those dresses. I bought one pattern and I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is how a bodice is made. Six piece bodice. Got it. And then I just started to draw them from memory. Nice. Sew them and like fit them on and be like, this kind of works. That kind of works. I'll have to show you pictures. They exist. They're ridiculous. Yeah. And it was bolder. So everyone was really excited about having some kind of like local fashion thing. And we threw... Uh Um, we had fashion shows like four times a year. It was, it was other people were involved too. I had a rack in there. It was Erica Tess and that's how Erica Tess started is because they, that's what they called me. Brandon who owned atmosphere Uh started calling me Tess. And then everyone called me Erica Tess. And I was just like, this is my thing. This is isn't your real it's my middle name oh okay got it got it so it's erica tess khan yeah i go by erica tess quite often and that all started then and i've just kept it going because i think it's it confuses everyone but it just like makes me happy so it's fine um and then when you're selling the hats in breckenridge what like it sounds like you were making money yeah yeah, it was. Cool. Um, I just wanted to really quickly too the um when I was selling dresses, I was because I was making them myself, they were like two or three hundred dollars. Uh-huh. Like between one sixty to like two forty five was my and, and I had a bunch of girls one at one point come in and buy all of their homecoming dresses. That was just that was it. Yeah. So, so I made a little bit of money there, which was great and fun. And then and then that was it. I did that for like two summers Okay. and I kind of, I like was really into it. And then I did it and I was in school and all these things. And it was just this really organic space. Some other, some other friends of ours, Tom Bond showed there, like it was this organic, crazy experiment. And it was, it was like 
prime real estate right on the corner of Ninth and Pearl. So I made a little bit of money there. The hats I made a little bit of money at on top of $8.75 I was making an hour at um, the burrito shop. Yeah. And it was great. So, and, and I think that all of that work making dresses and, and that stuff, like I had, FIT is notoriously pretty difficult to get into. Yeah. Um, but I had a lot of work at that point. So I think that, and, and, you know, photographers around Boulder would help me out and take some pictures. So, which was really great. I mean, I had heard how difficult it was and, and I'm just super thankful that I had put the time in, you know, after high school to like try it out and decide that that's like something I was interested in. Yeah. How long was that application process or? It was a while. I mean, I think all college applications are like relatively Mm -hmm. expensive. I feel like it it always feels longer than it probably is. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I have like the the right gauge now. At the time, I I remember it feeling like forever. Yeah. A ton of effort into it. I like, I like cut out the pictures and I like spliced them together and made Uh collages and and sketch. It was like, it It wasn't digital. It was all by hand. Nice. I didn't know how to do anything digitally at the time, except for like write a five page essay. I almost didn't ask that question because I was like, no, it had to have been digital, but. No, so straight up, like I went to Geary's, I got some like colored pencils. I had a couple of really nice pens. I had some Mm -hmm. sketches. I I had sketchbooks for a long, long time that I would, I would literally like sit in high school. I would sit in the back of class and draw outfits. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was pen on paper, like spending way too much time on things. I remember looking at it later on and being like, the proportions are all off and this looks insane. And it was totally just, I thought it was awesome at the time. But then when you really look at it, you're like, oh my gosh, it's nice to see how far you've come. Yeah. Because it's still hand sketch from time yeah. to time. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the dresses got you into FIT mm-hmm. and then you went to New York. Oh my gosh, that's all we're at right now. This is a this is a long story. Um, went to FIT because they had an outerwear and active program, and they actually canceled it the first year I was there. So I was like pretty bummed out, and it was it was difficult. FIT is like is a state. It's the only state supported art school, so it's fantastic place to go mm-hmm. uh, for art in New York City because it's not a private school. It's yeah. a SUNY school, so it is so so inexpensive it was cheaper than my in-state tuition was at CU Boulder oh wow yeah it was great it was like a couple thousand dollars right a semester which was so cool but um yeah so I basically instead of I was like really pissed off that they didn't have the outerwear and activewear program and it was all catered to high fashion so I kind of decided to keep one foot into the industry and uh Got a job at Patagonia just on the retail floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and and because being from Colorado, I was like pretty quickly made the like point person for the um, the Alpine section because I could talk about mm-hmm. down properties and different places and different temperature gauges and different humidity and what it all meant. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a pretty basic understanding of all that stuff. And uh, 
yeah, went to, did that, went to FIT, was at Patagonia, ended up at um, Pilgrim Surf Supply because I, I was surfing quite a bit. I skated and surfed a, a ton in New York just to stay sane. I ended up snowboarding a lot there too. Ended up at Pilgrim. Um, I was, I went to Mollusk before I worked there and like was surfed with a couple of the guys that, uh, that worked there. Then Chris, uh, Gentile who started Pilgrim broke off from Mollusk and, and started Pilgrim and asked if I wanted to, well, he actually asked my boss at Patagonia at the time if he could steal me. So I ended up at Pilgrim, was on their retail floor, and it was just starting up. So it was like all hands on deck, doing everything. Yeah. I loved the products. It was, it was just like a, a matching a bunch of different things from the surf world and the outdoor world and the fashion world and the menswear world and the Japanese. It was just this whole thing, mm-hmm. whole generation of how old. How old was Pilgrim at that stage? I think I started when it was like two and a half months. Oh, okay. So you... So right where you were in there. Right at the beginning. Um, So it was really just like things were breaking. Chris was in there morning and night with the the drill, just like electrical, all the stuff. Got it. You're in school and doing Pilgrim at the same time. Yeah, and working at the uh, farmer's market. I was very, very tired. (laughs) I I had to support my uh, pay rent, which which is really hard in New York, but... If New York City is the best place to be if you are broke. Uh-huh. The best place to be if you just ha- just are completely broke because you're there with everyone else and the food yeah. is cheap and it's easy around and you can just have the best time. But um, so yeah. yeah, that was awesome. And then we started to kind of pretty early on, I was like, hey, like we should make t-shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chris, I mean, I don't know who said it, it was probably him or me who we needed shop tees and we needed hoodies. Yeah. And, um, so we, we chose a bunch of colors and we, we got wholesale accounts with some different blank companies and started making the shop tee, which still is the same today as it was then. Now it's, it's their own block. Same graphic. Um, same graphic. Yeah. Just the simple. Nice. Pilgrim pennant. Yeah. Cool. And, um, made tees, made hoodies, made this one hoodie specifically, poly cotton. So it was so, so soft marl hoodie from alternative apparel. We did a gray one and a light blue one and put the pennant on it and it blew up in Japan. Nice. (laughs) It like went all over blogs. All of a sudden people were like lining up in the morning and would come in and buy stacks of these things and we would just run out. So we ended up getting some notoriety from that. And then it was, it was just a really cool shop. And at that time, that was kind of like the golden era of like menswear, I feel. So we were getting a ton of international attention and it was so interesting. Um, and uh, Pilgrim was approached by, <laughs> by Beams uh, in Japan, which is a, a, it's like Nordstrom's, but bigger and cooler. Uh-huh. They have all of these like really amazing stores that are like Beams Boy, which is a, a women's store, which is so uh-huh. cool. And there's just all these different ones in their department stores, but just the coolest thing you've ever seen. So we were yeah. approached by them and, and, you know, they wanted to help make Pilgrim a brand. And Chris kind of looked at me and, and said, like, are you, are you up for it? Are you down to do it? And at the time I was still in school full time, but um, I didn't know how to say no. Yeah. I, I didn't want to say no. No way. 
<laughs> yeah, I said yes, um, but I didn't know exactly what that was going to be, and I quickly found out it was a lot, but that's how it all started, and then I was all of a sudden their first designer and um, made sketches, and, and Chris is a really great um, creative director. He's mm-hmm. a like fine artist, also was creative director of Kane Nast for a while, like he's a, mm-hmm. he's really good at what he's doing so he kind of would set a tone and I would take him and run with it yeah was there a ton of like sort of direction involved or was it just kind of like here's what I'm hoping for go figure it out um the direction was there was definitely like a mood like Pilgrim had a whole vibe and mood to it that I was just steeped in yeah that and and it was like setting the visual direction the visual direction was there of what that was and then color was there and then also like the pieces like I was designing it was really fun because at the time I was designing for like that hip Williamsburg guy like surfer guy Mm -hmm. and I knew who all of these guys were I worked with all of them I saw them in the shop every day I saw what they bought so I got to just be really specific about what exactly these people are going to want. Yeah. And then he just had things that he really wanted too. And everyone in the shop kind of like had ideas and made a line list and I drew everything by hand. Um, cool. Before I, I made them digitally just because mm-hmm. it was nice to have by hand. And it was, it was, you know, we, we presented to the beams team every year, they would fly over from Japan and here I was, I, I put, put up all these blackboards and, with all of our imagery and I made tons of doodles and like, it was funny and weird and quirky, but, um, it was, it was really special. It was a ton of work. So we did a few seasons and, and it was, it was awesome. Um, and just having the support of the pilgrim community was so cool. We had an ad agency around the corner called double dated Cartwright, um, and Kimu Meyer, who goes by grotesque uh, was, you know, one of the the bosses over there and he would come in and, and yeah. or go over there and just be like, is this any good? Is this any good? Is this any good? And I would also have Chris for that. And I would have people in the shop for that. So I learned a ton just through trial and error. And I was calling cold calling places and we, we were working with a lot of brands. So I would call brand partners and say, hi, like, where do you get this thing done? just be like, Hey, like, who do you use? Can we use the same guy? Like, where do you get your fabrics? And I, I would do everything. I sourced, I rode my bike around the city. I went to all the sourcing shows. I had no idea what I was doing, but I got everyone's card and I took swatches and I figured out, I laid it all out and I called all of the agents and Uh I learned Excel in a night and tried to cost everything out. And it was just like a total crash crash course. But um, I'm so thankful that it happened that way because I really got to understand all of the tiny little pieces. And I had a lot of people to kind of call and ask for help. But I don't, I think without that, just having a design education, you don't really get the like, this is how you source. This is like, there are duty rates involved. There are, it's, there's so many complicated things that goes, that go into creating apparel, 
there's the fabric, there's the trims, there's the, you know, obviously the pattern and the marker, and then there's grading and there's, you have to get samples and mm-hmm. mark up the samples, send them back, get them back. And just like every step of the way, things can just constantly go wrong, but it was really cool. And being in New York city and having a bike, yeah, I would literally just ride my bike over to all of our factories, mm-hmm. check fit samples. So the QC, all of it. Or, so it was all being produced in New York. At the time, yeah, everything was made in New York City, which was great because I went to school on 27th Street and the fashion district was like 36th to 39th Street. Mm-hmm. So between classes and on lunch breaks, I could go to class, run up, grab the zippers from this place and bring them over. Like I needed a hundred, I remember specifically needing 180 zippers, all colorway, buying them off the shelf because the stores thankfully just had YKK for days, bringing them back over to my factory and then just biking back to, to class. Yeah. In an hour, but it, it was, uh, it worked out. I had a huge backpack. Totally. So when did you sleep? <laughs> I'm sorry. It seems like this you're is, busy. During- yeah, no, this is the joke. I, I really, I really didn't because I would go to class from like, eight or 9am uh-huh. until it was different every day. Some days I would end at two, some days I would end at six. And, um, I would be either going back and forth to the garment district. I would have meetings. I would have, you know, we had a couple of different factories. I think we used three and they were all within like a four block, five block radius. And, um, check on all of that stuff, ride my bike back to Brooklyn, get back to the shop, go downstairs, have a bag of chips. <laughs> and a beer <laughs> and just like plug away and and oftentimes until like 2 a.m and Chris would buy me Chinese food and we <laughs> um Eric who was the shop manager at the time would be there with me and he's you know had his hands and everything too so I think I slept it was like 2 a.m you got a cat nap in I got a cat nap in yeah um I mean, I think that that, that might be, there were, I think those are just my most memorable days. It probably, it wasn't all like that, but those are the ones that I'm like, oh, I remember that time. But it's kind of cool to have those times where you're just packing it in from morning to night. Totally. It was, New York has this energy to it. So it didn't feel like I was doing anything out of the ordinary at the time. Yeah. You're just moving from thing and together. I I was friends with, um, across the way from my apartment. I was friends with, I used to, I was a waitress at the cafe across the street one summer too. This is many years. So I have, I've had so many jobs. Yeah. Um, and I made friends with them and it was a, uh, Vietnamese pho restaurant at night and, um, on who owned it would feed me like nightly. I would show up. He closed at 10 30. So I think that I actually ended up home pretty often. Uh-huh. Like, which, cause I, I just remember eating pho like most nights of the week. Um, so I think, I think most nights it was probably be done 10, 10 30. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Not too bad. Anyway, that was, um, it was awesome. It was great. I, I surfed when I could, mm-hmm. uh, got a little bit of that in. I would go snowboarding one day on the weekend if I possibly could. It was where, just, where did you go snowboarding? 
Um, Hunter Mountain was was the uh, the mountain of choice. We were I was part of the OVR crew, which is a, a bus company that runs out of New York City, and I banded up with those guys pretty early in my time in New York. And um, so I would get free bus trips and lift tickets any day that I wanted to, any day of the week. So it was a really great way. I would have like one day off a week and I would just like make sure that I would just get on the bus and go go spend the day on the mountain. It was a long day. All yeah. I had to do was like make mm-hmm. out in the morning and hand out muffins. <laughs> so yes, that was New York. I came back for a stint and started a hat company and then North Face called. And that was kind of like a dream job for me. They needed someone um, to head up their women's free ride collection. It was basically, I was like, well, the universe is calling and I shall answer that was just my dream job was to be making snowboard apparel for, um, you know, people like myself and people younger than myself. So that was awesome. That was an amazing opportunity. So I went over to North face and spent a little over four years there doing mostly the women's free red collection and dabbled a little bit here and there. And then also um, steep series. And then the, the Olympics, uh, the Pyeongchang Olympic free ski uniforms. Um, and that was just like, Pilgrim was awesome to learn how the entire, you know, how clothing is made, like the whole process yeah. from a small company standpoint. And then North Face was just like, I learned so much about super technical textiles, which was invaluable. And I've always been a textile nerd. So I just really soaked as much in as I possibly could and, and learned kind of how this stuff is done on a, on a much bigger scale mm-hmm. and got to really dive into, because at a small company, you know, the design part might be 10 to 15%, but yeah. at North Face, it was, you know, we had design reviews constantly. So it was a much more design heavy job and it was amazing. Were you kind of concentrated within that were you focused on one specific part of the design process or were you kind of owning a full process in sort of like a bigger, um, you know, assembly, I don't want to say assembly line, like a, um, yeah, bigger season or like track of work. Yeah. So I get this question a lot. It's funny that you ask because I think for a lot of people, it's like they'll work on a button or they'll work on this or that. But when you're designing, it's really like you're looking at the whole garment. Mm -hmm. So we have a huge team and a ton of support because it takes so much more than just design to make things happen. Um, But yeah, so we would get a brief or a line list and, you know, sometimes we would be able to a lot of the times I would say, Hey, I really want to make this or this, or like this, I find really interesting. I want to make, you know, I had a couple of like smaller passion projects that I was able to kind of throw in here and there, which were really fun. But, you know, we would kind of solidify the line list for the season and then I would go away. And in, and you know, we had four people at that time, three designers specifically on the snow sports team. And it was, you know, there were, there were a lot of different lines. There was free ride, there was all mountain, uh, steep series and global. And then there were just a couple offshoots here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would all kind of like have, all right, I know I need to make 18 styles this season. And yeah. then we were responsible for, you know, 
the design of those 18 styles. So we would have to choose the fabric, the trims, the color, mm-hmm. we would draw it, we would take, you know, make, you know, the visual measurements, whereas then we also have development and technical design to do like the fit and the patterning. Yeah. We would design the aesthetics of the thing. And, and the, thing- the line list, was that just conceptual at that stage? And then you would give it more specific shape and then the patterning would yeah. actually do the, the line. The line list would be like, we need a $199 two layer insulated jacket with hand pockets. And, and then. So some guardrails. That, that, those are your guide rails. So you'd have like, here's $199, here's $249, here is $320, and here's $500. Mm-hmm. So you have guardrails like that once you solidified the line, and then you yeah. design into the brief. Well, so when you then were putting those designs together and you're sourcing material and um, colors and things like that, were you, did you have resources established that you could work from? Are there stipulations around who you have to work with or were you able, did you have freedom to maybe do some side sourcing and whatnot? So yes, uh, to the, the latter, um, we, so there's an entire materials team yeah, and they are, you know, there's a, it's not just one person, it's a whole team. Mm-hmm. No. And sometimes you'll have one person who's responsible for snow sports. And, um, so there's the materials team, but there's also a sourcing team yeah, who deals with going to the mills, making sure everyone's being compliant, mm-hmm. getting, you know, the price points where they need to be and all of that kind of stuff. There were kind of two ways that this worked. Mm-hmm. One way was we could, they had what's called commercialized materials that mm-hmm. would already be costed and we would be able to choose from those, which sometimes you had to stick to depending on your price points. Yeah. But a lot of the times we would, and almost before the brief, we would have an idea of our, in our head of what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And we would basically, we would have to create a fabric. So we would do a, a fabric submit basically saying, I want a, you know, one or like 230 GSM, you know, hand feels like this. Here's like some, what is the fabric I found? It needs to look like this you know, make it waterproof, breathable, 20K, 20K. So you would kind of say what you needed. And then um, the materials team would then work with the mills to produce something like that. Okay. So, so that would produce fabric specifically to what you were needing for that season or for that piece. Yep. Yeah. That was, a, that was a big part of it was um, creating the fabrications that we wanted to create. Um, sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't work, but it was always nice to kind of make something new. And then, you know, it was always exciting when it was able to be commercialized and then used. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the times it would be like, Hey, Hey, I really like this fabric, but it needs to be recycled. Um, or, Hey, we need this fabric, but we need it to be a C zero finish instead of a C six. That was like a large company overhaul number that you just mentioned the C C six versus C zero. Is that a, is that because of sustainability or what was the that is that that's like a whole there's so many tangents one can get into um but we don't have to sidetrack on that oh no it's it's actually a really good one um basically it's talking about dwrs durable water repellency yeah so originally it was always a c8 or a c6 which is a super super toxic 
chemical that you would literally spray onto your clothing that we are currently having a lot of, you know, health problems because of, uh-huh. um, and they're awful. So, uh, I think a lot of companies, it's been a few years now, North Face did it, Patagonia has done it now, a lot have changed to C0, which is a lot better on the human body. You know, it would have to go piece by piece. We're like picking fabrics and all of a sudden we're like, Ooh, I love this fabric, but it has a C6 finish. This has to get changed. Yeah. But then a lot of the times it would be, Hey, it would come from the designer. Hey, can we get this recycled and can we afford it? And all of these things. So we would have to kind of push on that end. Yeah. Um, I personally was very involved in the sustainability initiatives just because I was really interested in sustainability at FIT. I co I was a president of the sustainable design club at, at school. So another thing that I didn't sleep over Um, after this awesome woman, Rachel handed it down to me. And then at North face, I actually started sustainability lunch club, Uh which was super, I, I um, I am an idea person. I start a thing and then I don't have enough energy to follow through with it. But thankfully at the North Face, they have, um, you know, sustainability people who then took it and, and ran with it. And it became oh. such a big thing. And I was so thankful for it because what happened is it, it was like everyone could just come. Marketing came, materials came, design came, yeah. e-commerce came and just talked about sustainability initiatives in the industry, in the world, and also company-wide. And it was really, really helpful because this the materials team would be like, oh, hey, we're working on changing all of our C6s to C0. And then marketing would say, what is that? What does that mean? And then they'd say, oh, it means this. Mm-hmm. And then it would spur marketing campaigns. And, and a lot, it was just a really good way you know, one of the hardest things about being in a big company is how disjointed it can be. So it's just really, really nice to all get together and know what's happening and know where your yeah. cog fits in the, you know, greater picture. And then actually, you know, if something happens in a material, that's awesome, but no one is going to care until that message gets out. Yeah, totally. That's so cool. So it didn't all happen there. It happened there were a lot of meetings about a lot of these bigger initiatives, but a lot of the smaller things that people thought they were just doing as passion projects. It was nice to like get those types of things out. Yeah. Or just have another outlet for like a more informal outlet. I feel like those are beneficial because then in a meeting, sometimes you feel like perhaps it's not the time to bring X up and in a more laid back situation, you can have that side conversation. And certain people were really into this stuff outside of work. Um, you know, so like, you know, we had people who were really involved in, um, fiber shed at the time, this thing in in the Bay area where it's basically within 150 miles of the Bay area. And then that became a whole thing and they made hats out of it. And it's just like, it really helped to just facilitate collaboration, which I find just so important and mm-hmm. it not being in a, you know, with no real agenda, it's amazing what can happen, but, um, totally. that's still totally going and it's a healthy part of, of their business now, which I am like so happy about. Cool. Um, and a lot of the, and a lot of the mills are in Southeast Asia, right? Most of them are overseas. Um, you know, it, it it's, all over the place, but a lot of, of mills are in, um, it'll be like Taiwan, 
little bit in China. Um, Vietnam is huge. Uh, there's, there's different mills all over. And then depending on what the fabric is, right. It's like Vietnam is really great for technical. Yeah. Taiwan is great for technical materials and great for nylons and polyesters and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, Mexico or Guatemala or Nicaragua is good with cotton or India is big cotton. So it's just different textiles are good for different places and it's just a total global economy. Yeah. So that was, as far as sourcing goes, like I had the, the North face behind me, which had, you know, we had so much manpower and we, you know, I just had all the resources I could possibly want. So that was just like a total dream come true to be able to have that type of reach was so cool. And to understand, you know, how that happened. But that being said, as the designer, I asked the materials person who then asks the mill who's dependent on the sourcing people. So it's just a whole line of command. There's like so many people that are responsible for this stuff and then costing it and making sure that it, you know, as I said, meets all of the requirements and then also meets, you know, there's, you know, a pretty, a very high standard filling and durability and making sure environmental impact, all of that kind of stuff. So you need an army to be able to kind of sift through all that kind of stuff and to make it actually happen. And I was just a very small piece of that. Totally. Well, and so as a designer in that sort of bigger ecosystem, were you, you obviously had to think about price and cost when you were selecting mm-hmm. materials for design, things like that. But how, how far down the chain did you have to be concerned with that? Or at what point did it roll over to more of like a product manager or, you know, like where's the line of kind of, understanding costs when you're designing and then actually drilling down on the numbers. So it's really funny because I started there kind of as a a pretty junior designer, all things considered. Yeah. So like conceptually, I almost like couldn't really wrap my head around it. That was something that I really had to learn with time, Um, you know, working with more experienced designers and more experienced product managers and sourcing people. I was like, how, like, it took me a couple of, it took me a while to really understand, okay, I have to like, this fabric has to be a dollar 60 or four twenty or $6 and 70 cents. And then as soon as we're, if we're getting into a gore fabric, all of those, because it's a branded fabric, all of those are in the twenties. So then we can't afford anything else on the garment because our fabrics are so expensive. Mm -hmm. So it took me a really long time and a lot of mistakes to figure out, oh, if I put this many pockets on it, it's going to cost this much money. But because my fabric cost is this, I cannot add as many feature sets. So designing to cost and cost engineering is took time for me to first understand the concept of, and then actually put it in practice. Yeah. And I had, and it wasn't just me. It was, you know, we had, we were brief. It was, you know, brought to a, to us saying, "Hey, this is the garment that we need and the fabric." Sometimes, not all of the time, it depend depended on the price point of the, of the garment. But if we're making a price point garment, yeah, you would be like, "This fabric has to be four dollars and twenty cents, and you cannot go over that." It was guardrails, and it was frustrating at times. But I learned to really understand that, like, if you give yourself bumpers, you can just make so much, like it's, it's, it's better that way. The bumpers are better. Well, so actually I think that kind of 
leads into sort of a sustainability conversation because, you know, obviously part of the sustainability consideration in any industry is just around how do you consolidate resources? How do you use, you know, how do you do more with less, that kind of thing. And so having the ability to, um, you know, just have those constraints is kind of more and more what we have to keep thinking through, not just from that visual or business perspective, but just, you know, obviously on the environmental and social front as well. And, and even, you know, being a designer, you, you are, there's so many constraints to take into consideration, but they're not constraints. They're just making sure that the product's the right product. Right. Um, which is great, but yeah, I mean, consolidation of, of resources, you know, as designers, we're always having to think about minimums and making sure to consolidate. Like if, if this fabric is black and I have another mm-hmm. fabric, another piece of that fabric, it has to be black or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is, that's where a lot of like, if, especially if you're doing like a color locked garment, you have to like be really strategic about what you're using for minimum sake, but then also resources sake. And, um, the North Face, you know, that was done over our heads, which was great. We had a whole sourcing team that, that was, I mean, we, there was a lot, don't get me wrong. There were a lot, there was a lot of fabrics. There's a lot to choose from, mm-hmm. but, you know, we were guided to things that were more sustainable mm-hmm. or things that were, you know, this is something that is like, if we can just everyone use this fabric, mm-hmm. then, you know, we can get a, a lower, you know, cheaper price, but also, you know, we can actually make this recycled because a lot of the times you can't make something recycled if you're only buying small amounts of it. Yeah. If making a new fabrication, you have to buy a lot, a lot, a lot of yardage. So consolidating is so key and it's hard to do, especially when you have a bunch of designers wanting to, you know, mm-hmm. make the next best X, Y, or Z, but that's kind of where, and I'm so happy that I had that education. And I now, not only do I know that, but I like embrace it. I'm like, I love like streamlining and I love making things, you know, make sense commercially. Mm-hmm. And also like, it makes the, the mills lives easier. It makes the factories lives easier. Yeah saves you money and it also like conserves resources. So yeah. And I mean, I remember pushing super, super hard for two years um, with my materials developer, Taylor Maskew to, um, to do solution dye garments. So non-water dye all recycled. That was like a two year thing where we're like, we have to get solution dye. We have to get solution dye. And then it was like, we can't do this color. We can't do color. We can't do this. It's like, there's too many things. And it had to be this whole bigger thing where we're like, we need a, we need like a bunch of pieces. They all need to be really similar. They all need to share color and we can make this really tight thing happen. And that's how we get this fabric done. And it happened. And now that fabric is being used and used and reused and it's hundred percent recycled, you know, no water is used. Like, so a lot, it's like those initiatives, like really do a lot of the time, sometimes it's a company wide thing, but a lot of the times it just comes from one person being like, 
hey, I really want to make this thing. Yeah. And that can be a designer, that can be a materials person, that can be someone in marketing who's like, this yeah. is a really cool thing. We need to like, it's, it really just, a lot of the take, time takes one person to really want to run with some, with something and just yeah. be that squeaky wheel and then get everyone else on board. Yeah, definitely. And then, so with, when you say a hundred percent recycled, what does that mean exactly? So it depends on if it's polyester or nylon. Mm-hmm. So these are petrochemicals. They are made from, you know, oil and gas. And um, so having it be recycled is, is great. So polyester can be recycled from, a poly, recycled polyester is much more widely available. It can come from plastics, water bottles specifically. That's why you see t-shirts that are made from water bottles. So it's a, it's an easier thing to come by and there's a pretty big global supply for that. You know, they take recycled materials and they melt them and they make them into fibers and, and you can have a hundred percent recycled polyester. And then there's nylon, which is just, a, it's a different kind of form of, of those chemicals and you need nylon to make nylon. So it's, um, you know, the, the supply chain is smaller. It's harder to get your hands on, you know, mills run out of it all the time. So, um, it just, it it takes a lot of pushing. And then, then of course, you know, when you want to make these, these things recycled because it's, you know, another step in the process, all of a sudden your fabric cost just went up a dollar. And when you, you know, consider that a jacket is two and a half, three yards. And that's, so that's $3, which is a ton, you know, reflected the customer, you know, yeah. It's just the whole thing. So it's hard, but it just takes a lot of persistence and it takes, you know, the whole team kind of getting behind an idea to actually like create it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that those types of solutions are, um, and they're obviously sort of the best available at this moment for a bit more like mass production, but do you think that those are, I mean, because again, you highlighted, like you still have to, they're still coming from fossil fuel sources. You still have to run water to like recycle them. You still, you know what I mean? There's like all these extra things baked into that process. Is there, you know, what are the, I'm curious what your hotspots are around sustainability um, and specifically like making clothes sustainable, sustainably. And then what's the next evolution of working from recycled fabrics and what's kind of like the latest? Yeah. Well, first of all, getting recycled fabrics is still really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, Even just that, yeah, even just that. I mean, if you look around, like most of it is not one could be a price concern. It could also just be an availability concern. So it's like, it's really hard stuff to get. And what you need a lot of the times to get that is, you know, you need the numbers. So you might need different, you know, a bunch of companies asking for it at the same time. And then you also need, you know, factories to make that a priority. Yeah. So you need to basically just be knocking on their door saying, you know, we need more, you know, they need to build factories to break down and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's just, there's a whole, there's a whole thing. So, you know, that's one thing it's, it's difficult to get. So I think that, um, 
first of all, just like cost wise. Mm-hmm. And I think it's slowly happening. Like having it, having a consumer be okay to pay a little bit more money for it to be recycled mm-hmm. it would just make such a big difference because a lot of companies won't make something recycled just because that's the price point. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, one thing. There's so many. So they are still fossil fuel. I think recycled is a really good step because it's all already out there. And if we can just reuse it, then Mm -hmm. awesome. And, you know, it's a great material. It's, you know, has all these great performance properties to it. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then, you know, there's other, you know, people are constantly trying to waterproof different fabrications and there's, there's stuff out there but it takes a lot of resources to make a mill mill and factories. If you think, if you think a corporation is big, you should like what a mill looks like. Yeah. Because they are huge and it is a huge process to make fabric and to make it in, in quantities and to make it well and to have quality around it and the control. It's just a ton. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, really, it's just a really slow process. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many, cause like that's just talking about outerwear fabrics mm-hmm. and, and just speaking about the textile industry, like the, the garment industry, the apparel industry is like top five. Cool. It's not, might be, it's not even pollutants. It's the large, it's like top five largest industry. It's industry. Yeah. It's yeah. like top five largest industries in the world. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. So like, that's just outerwear fabrics. You know, we can get into, there's cottons, there's knits, there's different wovens, there's all these things. So it's like there, you know, if we're just talking outdoor industry and we just want to talk about petrochemicals, that's fine. But mm-hmm. there's like just so many in the world and each kind of, each material has benefits yeah. and downfalls and each thing has to be looked at differently. So I think, you know, and the problem is, is that everyone's producing things all of the time. So it's really hard for innovation sometimes mm-hmm. when people are having to worry about making sure these things are, are made and done and good. It's, it's mm-hmm. hard to be creating new technologies to try to make it better. Right. So it, we almost, it, it almost needs to just be like a secondary thing that's not worried about deliverables and not worried about the next season is just worried about creating scalable processes that can then be implemented into you know onto factory floors and into mills and mm-hmm. buy houses and, and all of the different steps of the way so it's just incremental and yeah. you really need to like look at it from you you know there's a macro level and there's a micro level so it's it's complicated for sure it's in the right direction but it, it's all like little steps here and there, there's like definitely not one Holy grail whatsoever. No way. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that is, you know, one of the industries that's going to take a very long time to start making some meaningful conversions, um, that scale. But I wonder if like, is that a constraint that we should be considering more in terms of, you know, if you can't order, recycled fabric that's probably too or perhaps too expensive like are there other things that you can you know 
are there other ways to innovate? Like I know Outer Known has taken kind of their own path on some of that stuff, um, which I know they, you know, I know a lot of companies use kind of a lot of shared resources and things like that, which is awesome because I think it, you know, it brings the costs down and whatnot. But are there just other things that you think, um, other ways of looking at this problem instead of through a mass production lens? Because I think what we're talking through is a mass production lens and are there other ways to look at it? I guess the question is, okay, if we, obviously if we're going to keep producing at the level that we have been, yeah, I think that makes sense is that it's a much longer process where people don't want to take a time out versus is there space to, you know, start reinventing like what it even means to produce textiles, not at scale at first, but just how can we like source fabrics that are already out there, obviously like dead stock, but what are kind of some of those other alternatives? 